The Boise Dev Podcast is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is a free platform for podcasts like this one. It allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can even add in songs from Spotify to help spice up those episodes. Anchor will make sure that your podcast is distributed pretty much everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, and many more. Plus, you can make money from your podcast with an ad like this. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You are listening to the Boise Dev Podcast. Dr. Tommy Alquist with BBA Development. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So you, you know, we always try and talk about people's paths to where they are. And we've talked to a whole rash, whole raft of people. You have one of the more interesting paths. And yeah. You started in medicine. Yeah, I never, people ask me all the time, how did you, in fact, I just gave a talk at a university last week on kind of inspiring them before they leave to go to school. And afterwards, many of the kids came up and said, why did you do what you did? And why did you waste so much time going to school if you weren't going to use it? That was like what everyone says, is, why become a doctor if you're not going to become a doctor? But I, I didn't ever see it that way, Don. I, I didn't. I, it was very natural for me. And I think the things that I um, learned uh, all the way through my life, I, I don't think I would be as good of a business guy or developer or even in the medical stuff we're doing now that we, I'm sure we could talk a little bit about if I wouldn't have had all my other experiences. I think of all the entrepreneurial stuff I did in medicine and out and the other companies I've drawn, uh, driven. I just... I really, I really love my path, but it's, it's a strange one just because of the medical school thing. But yeah, I always wanted to be a doctor. Um, as far back as I remember being a little kid, I just wanted to be a doctor. I don't know why actually, because I did not, no one in my family on either side went to college even. And yet I wanted to be a doctor and just always, that, that's where I was headed. Was going to be a pediatrician. That was my passion. I just wanted to take care of kids. And the irony was I went to the University of Utah uh, and they have a lot of people that want to be pediatricians till they see what they make. <laughs> and then they don't want to be pediatricians anymore. So they had a blue chip pediatric program where they would grab you and say, we're not going to let this kid get out of the pediatrics program. And my, my mentor was Jeff Shunk. And my very first meeting with him, he's like, why do you want to be a pediatrician? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> and I said, well, I just want to take care of kids. He said, well, what, what do you want to do in pediatrics? I said, I want to be a pediatric emergency room doctor. And he said, well, don't do that. Become an ER doctor. And then you can still take care of kids, but you can live anywhere you want to live and you're not constrained to just cities with pediatric hospitals. And anyway, I, I went into it. I love medicine. I don't think I would have ever left. I did not predict in emergency medicine, uh, so I did it for 18 years, but when you go part-time, we live in a very litigious world. Sure. And I did not predict how, it's like, the only, only analogy I can think of is when you played football. If you were playing, if you were playing defensively, you probably got hurt more than if you were just playing not, you know, instead of to get hurt, not to get hurt, you're playing the other way around. I started practicing different, so got out of it. But that's the part that's weird. There's a lot of similarities too in emergency medicine. You walk into a room, you fix a problem, you move on. You walk into a room, you read someone. Uh, you know, what are you really here for? How can I help you? You connect with people. And in the business life and world, especially in development, you find a problem, you try to fix it, and you're done, kind of move to the next problem. So there's a lot of similarities to medicine, the kind of medicine I practice. And now with Salter Health, I mean, we are deep diving into healthcare right now. We uh, are... 
our mission and vision with Salter Health is to change the way healthcare is delivered to the families of Idaho. And that's a big vision, but we are well on our way there. So they're, they're all going together. It's right. a strange pathway, but uh, life's good, man. A lot of good, good things going on. So we'll talk about Salter as we kind of go along here, but you make this pivot from emergency medicine and you were, you were working here in the Valley, right? Yeah. And did you have this, was it a moment or was it a process of thinking, boy, I'd like to try something else. And how did you get to, you know, turning dirt and developing land? So I, um, whoops. Uh, just a table. Just a table. We're losing tables. <laughs> I, uh, I, so I was at St. Luke's Hospital. I had already started other businesses, though. That's the thing. I was already, stat pads was already well in the way. Right. When I got here in 99, um, I started stat pads a year later. So I already had another side business. And I was already very entrepreneurial doing other things, helping other people. And then it all started, I would drive, I would do night shifts at St. Luke's Meridian, and I would drive through that subdivision on the corner of Franklin and Eagle Road. And I did all night shifts for 10 years. So you gotta imagine, I'm in my scrubs, and every morning I would cut through the neighborhood to go home to my house. And I would look at that, and I'm like, why isn't anyone buying up the subdivision? Right. Because there's the hospital, it's growing like crazy, the valley's growing like crazy. This corner is very valuable. And so I, I really started without a plan. It was just, I wonder if I can buy all these houses. And if I did get them all, obviously we could do some medical buildings and we could do some great things here. And that's how it started. It Portico. Really started Portico. Um, and that that was, and then I fell in love with it. I, I don't know, sometimes in life you, you may have turns that are unexpected because you just really like something. Yeah. And for me, that's what happened. I, I did that project and I just loved it. One of the things that people may not realize in medicine, and if you talk to people in medicine, especially emergency medicine, the professional satisfaction is actually very low because your interaction with patients is very good. So you'd have patients come in, you'd connect with families and you'd help them. But you think about this, and I, I judge people from my ER life based on what it was like to wake them up at two in the morning. For example, you come in with a newly diagnosed cancer, you're throwing up, you're sick, you just need care. I have to call the oncologist on call that night to try to get you admitted to the hospital. And a lot of those interactions are super negative. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, I left that world of a lot of negativity between consultants and people that, that that weren't happy in what they were doing. And I went get out to the business world, and for the most part, you have a team of architects, you have a team of professionals, you surround yourself with, you lead a team, and the, the professional satisfaction in the development world is so much greater than medicine. It makes me sad a little bit too. And I still talk to my friends that are in medicine, and it's one of those un, unspoken things in medicine where there's just a lot of negativity. Uh, professionally in medicine, uh, that's a big, big, it's a big job dissatisfier for folks. So it's too bad. Um, uh, and, and, you know, getting back to healthcare, our, 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 my tagline for Salter that I came up with is putting happy back into healthcare. Mm -hmm. There's something really wrong with that whole delivery system where you really took someone that has a need that's going to someone to be helped. You're, we talked about your dad this morning. Sure. Yeah. Needs help going into a doctor who went into a profession, most of them very nobly, not to make a bunch of money, but to actually care for people. And you have, you're surrounded by nurses and a team that did the same thing. And we've made that interaction so transactional. And it's so cumbersome and layered with costs and everything else that we've taken the happy out of healthcare. And a lot of friction for the consumer. And a lot of friction for the consumer. And so our goal, motto, is to put happy back into healthcare because it should be 
It really should be someone that went into something to care for someone, someone that needs help, and that transaction ought to have less friction. You know, ought to be more transparent. You ought to know what you're paying. You ought to feel like uh, hospitality ought to be part of it. A lot of the things we're doing, why don't we treat that interaction like we treat a lot of other things in life where the consumer should be expected to be, be treated appropriately and, and know what it's going to cost and, and have a great experience. So you you kind of get into development. You have you've had sort of two phases of this career yeah. so far. You were with you started your own firm that, that moved into Gardner Company, and then you made this decision to try politics. Another another pivot to, to borrow a, a word used around here. A yeah, lot. I was I was probably super naive uh, <laughs> looking back now. Um, I, I will always be accused of being too visionary and too naive when it comes to reality. And you know, I took on two institutions of politics, right? Right. Raul Labrador, Brad Little. Yeah. But but I, but frankly, I'm glad. I'm, it's the best thing I've ever done and the hardest thing I've ever done. I was just tired of the status quo. I'm just. In fact, I we just started a new nonprofit today. We just had our first board meeting. And every time you, as in the private sector, talk about the world and how to make it better, government always seems to get in the middle of that. Whatever side of the, of the aisle you're on, government just tends to get in the way of really good things that happen. Or like healthcare, you look at the way government solves healthcare, you're like, man, you're creating more problems than, than you're solving. If you look at the way government solves transportation, or government or, or lack of solution, right? Okay, we'll the way they that. bicker and fight over some of the things are. But look at just this legislative session right now. As a as a as a taxpayer, as a husband, father, business owner, I'm gonna just be pissed off at what's going on right now. It ought to drive us nuts, and yet people are disengaged. They don't even know what's going on down there, and that's just the world we live in. Well, I naively thought I'm gonna jump in. I'm gonna make a difference. The only thing I would have ever done, I think being governor would have been fun. I think you're the CEO of a state, a large budget leadership, but I think there are a lot of things that, that could be easily, I mean, I'm telling you the truth. I spent two years digging deeply into higher education, K-12 education, healthcare. There are solutions that, that are absolutely possible in a state like ours, because we're small and nimble. We're not, we're not a huge state with these big urban problems. But that's why I did it, um, and uh, don't don't regret it. But man, it was hard. It's tough. Um, would never do it again. What did you learn from that process that you apply now? So I learned uh, I learned the value of relationships. Um, when I first did it, I had a really really good friend who said, "You'll never have people." stop disappointing you. Like you go from this world where you thought you had friends, you thought you had people that knew you and, and you get into politics. And when you cross that line, all the people take gloves off and it's like, Hey, you asked for it. So I learned, I learned who my, my friends were, I learned who I'm going to be. It's funny. I was over in Rexburg, Idaho, um, just this last week. And I ran into a friend of mine who I, he, he's a, he's a, he's a welder over there. He's a simple, common, hardworking, blue collar guy. And he came and hugged me and he said, man, I never thought that after your campaign was over, we would be friends forever. And I looked at him and I said, are you kidding me? When I went through that raw experience, you were there for me every day. I can't tell you how many fundraisers yelled for me. I have these people around the state that became like family to me that I love. I would do anything for. So I learned that. And then the second thing I learned, I learned a lot about government. I learned a lot about 
how dysfunctional it is. I learned a lot about how partisan views of the world were really distracting from good policy on a state level and a national level. I learned that people are hypocrites <laughs> on both sides. I learned that uh, I can't tell you how many times I, I would sit listening to someone talk and think to myself, do you even hear the, your own words? Because what you're saying makes no sense. You think you're so principled and you have this value system that drives your decisions, but you're really just a hypocrite. I learned that about a lot of people. And then I learned probably the most important lesson that there are a lot of really, really good people in the state that love this state, love our country, work hard, love their families, um, would do anything for anyone. And we live in an incredible, incredible state, uh, Don. I, I, I've been all over the place and traveled and, and our people, our whole culture, our heritage here, I, I just love our state. And that was, I, I, the, the one reason to do this over again, if, if I ever would do it again, would just to be to have the relationships and, and love for the people that I developed around the state. Do you think that uh, as a state or as a country will ever, it seems like we're getting pulled further and further to the fringes by our elected leaders <clears throat> and there are strong incentives in the system that pull us towards those, those two sides of the two-party system. A lot of people still kind of live in the middle. Do you think that the business sector and nonprofits and leaders who are outside of politics can help us figure out the solutions that mostly come in the middle, or are we going to continue to go down this road? You know, I, I think it's been interesting having done a pretty deep dive into politics myself and now being back out. What I call it is the fog has lifted. You get into those relationships and you think that's the way the world thinks, but it's not. And so I really think that I'm a better citizen. I'm a better business owner. I'm a better husband and father having done it. But yes, I do believe that most of the good things that happen in the world don't have to happen through government, right? And the irony is we spend so much time talking about government. There's a lot that can happen in our own lives. There's a lot that can, well, I just, again, I'm going back to the meeting I just had with this new nonprofit we're, we're, we're launching. The benefactor of that nonprofit will be a new program we're calling Teens to Trades. I think that solving how we can get kids, especially at-risk kids, into trades and good-paying jobs, that can be driven by the private sector. Um, I think most of the solutions that will have to do with transportation and, and infill and development, a lot of those ideas can initiate from the private sector. I think about healthcare. You know, I got a first-hand look into how messed up and, and, and the vetting, the complete screw job on the American people, government has created with healthcare. And I think most of the solutions will come from the private sector. So I believe that Americans and the American spirit is alive and well. I believe in entrepreneurs. And I believe that anytime there's a crisis, you will see people rise and respond. I'm very proud. I'm proud of, you think about the recession, how deep and ugly it was here. Look at what's happened after the recession. That was the private sector responding and key individuals and companies saying, hey, we're not going to stay down. We're going to stand up and figure out how to do this for our business and for our people. I mean, you look, there's lots of inspiring stories of a lot of people saying, hey, the world's changing, but we're going to figure this out. And that's what America does. So, yes, I believe that there is a way in a very partisan, ugly, nasty, hypocritical world we live in politically that you can still be make a difference in, in the community and as a business leader. So you run Anthony Scaramucci to Idaho yeah. last uh, August, I believe, for your summit. I was there and 
uh, you know, he spent uh, not very long inside the Trump administration. Um, but he delivered this message that I think was surprising to people in the audience that was sort of like, we're going to be okay. We're going to figure these yeah. solutions out as a country. As you look for solutions now, how do you focus? People were like, Tommy's got his hands in like, there's like 15 developments and he's starting a, a health system and he's doing this. How do you bring your talents and capacities to bear on things that are going to make that difference? So I think, um, I think for, as I get older, I get wiser a little bit on what my strengths are and what my weaknesses are. I think when you're young, when I was young, I didn't recognize my weaknesses. I mean, I think that's just part of growing old. And one of my weaknesses is I'm really good at vision. I'm really good at big picture and passion and energy. I'm really good at seeing a diagnosis, if you will, right? So think about the ER, 45,000 patients. You walk in, why are you here? How do I get you to a healthier you and a a disposition to either the hospital or home or how do I take care of you? It's the same thing with problems. I'm very good at finding that. What I'm not good at is managing. I'm not good at it. So what I've found, uh, if you you spent any time with our organization here, I've been very, very, very blessed uh, with with surrounding myself with really good people. And I will tell you that, that when that connection happens, it's magical to me. In fact, some of the some of the best experiences of my life have been when I find the right person to help me carry out a vision. For example, right now, Ed Castledine is the guy running Salter Health for me. He's the CEO. We're like kindred brothers. We it's like we're dangerous for each other because we run so hard, but 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 that guy, surrounding myself with that guy is gonna make Salter successful. If I look at our development, yeah, I've got Ryan Cleverly and, and and Mark Cleverly and these guys that, that just are amazing individuals and work their tails off that, that are helping drive those businesses. Uh, I, I try to surround myself with friends who, th- who think big. I like to surround myself with people who are about community. Um, I also, you know, I, I've been asked a lot of things. What's the end game for you? What are you, you know, what are you trying to do? And, and for me, it's simple. I want to make a difference. I want to give back. So whether if it's in healthcare, the whole reason we're doing this, I want to lower premiums for families by 50% in, in the treasure. I think we can do that. We're going to do that. I think in development, I think it's a means to an end for me. I think if we do really smart infill projects that make money, we can give back. That's why we started this nonprofit. How do we give back to our community? We can do that by doing you know, creating jobs, creating business and creating revenue that allows you to give back. So um, that's what drives me, motivates me. And uh, and I think that the future is bright. Going back to what Scaramucci said, he shocked me, by the way. Yeah. Shocked, shocked me too. Shocked me. He, he was kind of a twofer. We were trying to get one other speaker and he kind of came with that speaker. I was really worried about what he would say, but he had some really good things to say. And I loved how he ended it. It was that, that I, I believe in the American people, I believe in. And I think that that will carry the day most of the time, even though we're all appropriately worried about the political climate we're in. I mean, it's just horrible right now. Yeah. We could go in like five different directions, but let's let's do healthcare because you keep, you keep yeah. pulling us there, so we might, as well, yeah. we might as well go there. Healthcare is a tough challenge for people. It's gotten harder, it's gotten more expensive, it's gotten way more frustrating. You have some ideas with Saltzer that have kind of built up. Um, people who've been around a hot minute here remember another health system. We won't name them. Another health system who said we're going to marry insurance with with this, and it's all going to get better, and we're going to. And that so far hasn't really happened, and I think that um, people are a little frustrated. Yeah. 
how do you really change that? Where's the well, path? Talk about path. Where's the path to here's the path. making people say, I'm a seltzer health, I'm saving money. When you hear this, you're going to say, well, that sounds too easy to be true. But I really think it is. The Affordable Care Act forced consolidation. That wasn't partisan. It was just a fact, right? Something needed to happen. And the theory with the with, with Affordable Care Act is if we force giant health systems to own everything, and the way they did that was through in financial incentives. So if I was a health system, St. Louis or St. Al's, and I bought an independent surgery center, if I used my billing number, I could charge three times as much at that surgery center the next Monday when it opens with my banner on it, okay? That consolidation has happened, right? That, right. that happened. So no one will argue anywhere in Idaho or the United States that there's been massive consolidation. The problem with consolidation is anytime you get big and bulky and, and large, it's harder for you to deliver value, whether that's for anyone, right? You just become more cumbersome in the way you deliver care. And the layers of bureaucracy that have been created in our country around healthcare all are taking chunks of the of the of the dollar to the point where how many how many cents of the dollar are you actually spend in healthcare actually hits healthcare. And you think of PBMs, these pharmacy benefit managers, billion dollar companies now that all they do is is act as a go-between between the pharmaceutical company and the insurance company. I mean there's just layers and layers. So getting to the answer to your question, what we're gonna do is create an outpatient delivery system, okay, that is transparent. So we have really good friends that have disrupted the financial industry and the trucking industry who are our partners on a new app or platform, which will absolutely let you see the cost of care at Salzburg. So you'll download our app, you'll need a CT scan or a visit, and you'll be able to look up exactly what it's gonna cost you. That right there is revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Just letting a consumer say, well, wait a minute, a CAT scan with you is 450 bucks and it's $2,800 here? And it'll also show you on this app immediately what your deductible is and how much comes out of your pocket. So I think that if consumers had at least a look at what it costs, that's a big deal. Second thing is the cost of care has to be lower. You can't have a knee replacement cost $54,000. You can't, it doesn't cost that much. Uh, Northwest Specialty, and this was part of my campaign. I spent a lot of time up in Northwest Specialty Hospital up in, in North Idaho and over at Mountain View Hospital in the eastern side of the state. You know, that same procedure costs $14,000. So we will deliver care at Salzer at a lower cost and in a transparent way. And then we'll work with the insurers. When I, when I first went into this, the last gap was, what are the insurance companies going to think? But as we go to capitated care, so a PM, PM basis where, so before insurance companies would reimburse fee for service, that is going away to where you will have, you know, healthcare organizations will be paid on a per member per month basis, quality indicators, and, and this is what you're getting every month. So there is huge incentives to deliver care at a lower cost. But if I'm a big system, how do I do that? Right. Well, if I'm a small, nimble outpatient delivery system, now we're not going to be able to, we need hospitals. We need good hospitals. Sure. And thank heavens we've got two great hospitals. All we want to be is the deliverer of care for families. Because, uh, Don, one of the things we did wrong in the country is we developed these health systems around six people. Instead of de developing healthcare around healthy people and then taking care of everyone that gets sick. Kind of the incentives the wrong the way. The incentives are the wrong way. So 
Uh, we're excited. You know, we'll have nine urgent cares open this year. We'll have a surgery center, an imaging center. You know, we're up to 70 providers already, almost 400 employees. And we, uh, we just came out with our new marketing campaign. We've got ads and billboards and radio commercials because we're getting ready to launch a new brand uh, of, of Salter Health that is hopefully seen as the transparent, cost-effective, but still quality way of, of providing care. Then what will happen is if we partner with insurance companies, you will be out, we'll be offered a product that'll say, hey, if you go with the Salter product, it's less money than if you go with the other products. So do you see, you've got kind of these two really vertically integrated health systems, I call them Team Blue and Team yeah. Red, right? St. Alphonsus and St. Luke's, and they're, they're ostensibly nonprofits. Yeah. Um, do you see yourself more in kind of the primary care, I'm sorry, primary health space, or is it somewhere in the middle? And is there a difference between the nonprofit and the for-profit in trying to achieve these cost benefits? Yeah, that's, those are really good questions. So um, the costs of care are so high, it kind of doesn't matter how you consider yourself. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm not trying to be smart. I'm just saying when we're competing against $54,000 knee replacements, yeah. You come in at 20, you're going to be seen as a hero. If you're competing against $3,500 CT scans and $8,000 MRIs and we come in at $1,000, our goal is just to let patients decide and still have quality and, and then give them options. So I think we're not going to be a health system because we're, we're not a hospital. We're not patient delivery system. I do think that primary health does a great job. I mean, if you look at the way they do with access and urgent care, and hopefully as we go forward, we can be seen as not a competitor to primary health, but just another provider that's trying to provide access to care at a lower cost. Okay. So well, let's move on now. I'm looking at the at the rendering for Salter Health building. You're, you're, I like to say, turning dirt, and you're turning a lot of it. The, uh, the back co-operators in the Treasure Valley must really appreciate all the work you're doing. Uh, you've got Eagle View Landing off the freeway at Eagle Road. You've got 10 Mile uh, Crossing where we are now here at 10 Mile on the freeway. You've got a project you're working on out in Caldwell, uh, and you're just about all the way open on your project in downtown Boise, not to mention a bunch of others. Um, it seems like you're doing a lot and it's kind of happening all at once. Where do you see this going? So um, we, I, I need to mention, we have some great partnerships. So sure. David Turnbull, Steve Smith, own some great ground here at 10 Mile, and they were just visionaries saying, hey, this is gonna be worth a lot someday. Um, and they're our partners. Courtney right. Lillier, yeah. Ball Ventures, very well-heeled partner with plenty of capacity to say, hey, we can fuel whatever needs to happen. A great partner. So those partners make this possible. And then, you know, people say, why is all this happening? It, it's, it's so easy for me because I think you can lump, you can lump all this growth that we're seeing into kind of two categories. One, the recession was super deep. Yeah. And I don't think people realize that even though it's a long time ago, we are just now, because if you were a company, you retracted and you were in the fetal position and you were saying, are we going to survive? Okay. And then you were coming out of it, still remembering it, still had the wounds and scars and like, hey, I don't want to go back there. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to get back to where I was. We are just now seeing, hey, it's time to grow. Right. So there's people now saying, hey, we're ready to grow now because we're, we're doing well again. And, and people are like, well, that seems weird. That's so far away. But we see a lot of that. So good local companies that are saying, hey, it's time to grow. Where are we going to find space? And then... For a decade, all I heard people talk about, and I was part of it when we brought BSU into the Clearwater building downtown, is how do we create enough talent? 
talent's going to be what kills yeah. us. I mean, think how many conversations or, or meetings you're in where everyone says talent pipe, pipeline, talent pipeline, talent pipeline. It's the Brookings report, right? Uh, that, that's just what they said. Stop everything. Yeah. That's not happened. That's one of the unpredictables. We've got companies, we've got examples right here on campus that have come to us and said, hey, we're in California. We can't stand it anymore. We're overtaxed, we're regulated. It's the People's Republic of California. Right. We're out of here. And we're going to go to all of our employees and say, hey, we're going to Idaho where it's better to do business and cost of living is lower. Do you want to come with us? And they're having most of their company pack up and bring the talent with them. The other, the other example I always point to is the stage.o guys. I'm sure you've met yep. with those guys. Here's two brilliant, brilliant entrepreneurs from Seattle and San Francisco who have grown companies in those locations for a long time. And they, they choose Boise because they're like, well, why, why, why don't we just transplant talent from the coast here? It's a great place to live. People love being here. And we'll grow a company here with talent imported. So two big things is, is, is the talent I do not hear as an issue. Uh, talent is coming here. So we haven't had to grow our own. And I do believe there have been some good things with CWI, with Boise State, with President Custer before he left, that, that there, we are doing our best to fuel the talent or it's coming in. And, and you're right. Here's the statistics that, that I don't always really share it openly, but in, in, in our first 18 months, we signed 652,000 square feet of field leases. That shows some pent-up demand, right? Well, that's, that's more than I did in 12 years with my prior company. Yeah. That's more. I mean, that's the amount. And, and now, I think this year, we're already up over 120,000 square feet. We signed 87% of the leases that happened in the city of Meridian last year. We've got a great team. We've got great projects and locations. So I think we're just really fortunate, too, to be ready with product. And, you know, as you know, I think we have an in-house construction team. We have an in-house architect. We really, once we get someone that says, hey, I need space, I think we really, we take seriously the quality we're putting behind that. And I think people are saying, are you kidding me? So I can come to your place, have new space, which feels different, looks good, because most companies are trying to attract, retain employees to decrease absenteeism, increase productivity. It's a lot easier to do that new space. It's a lot easier to do that when you have locations that allow you to park for free. That's why we're seeing all this happen. So I write about this and think about this every day. And I, I was actually, I would say, fortunate enough to live in California for 10 months because it helped me really understand some of the challenges and why people are moving here. Um, and you've got this, boy, this friction again. People who've been here a long time who maybe are frustrated because a lot of folks are moving here, but the housing stock isn't keeping up. I know you're not a housing developer, but primarily, but how do you see us fixing that? We're short units in Boise. It's driving up the cost of these houses. You talk about cost of living. It is lower than it is in California, but boy, it's lower everywhere. How do we, how do we fix that? We've got the talent piece that you're working on, but without places for people to live, home values rocket up and are causing real, real hurt and concern for folks. So, so I hope that your listeners and anyone that I can say this to, you don't over-regulate, you loosen regulations. Let the free market solve this problem, please. I'm pleading with you. 40% of the residents of the Treasure Valley still live in that Alice group, right? Asset limited, income constrained. Point. 40% of people are paycheck to paycheck in the Treasure Valley. Yep. 4,000 kids in the Treasure Valley are homeless. Okay, so 
we have, despite everything that's going on and what appears to be this boom, we need higher paying jobs yeah. and we need housing options. My fear is that we, we, we are not doing enough to let the private sector loose to solve this problem because Mark, I'm a free market guy. You are not going to, as much as you want to regulate away the demand for the Treasure Valley, guess what? You're not going to regulate that away. People want to come here. So then the next thing if you do is if you start increasing regulations here to try to force certain construction types, you're going to stifle growth even more. You talk to my partner, David Turnbull, we've had two meetings with the city of Meridian because, you know, I made a joke at one of our groundbreakings, hey, everyone go and say the prayers tonight that they can find people to hire. We're waiting four months for a building permit. He, David can't get subdivisions pumped out fast enough because of regulation. Um, here's, I mean, I don't want to throw jurisdiction under the bus, but we're waiting for plats to go through the city and the county and ACHD four months at each location. And, and yet we're sitting here saying, how can we can't product type? We can't have product type because government is holding back the private sector. We don't have product type because we can't get enough housing units up that would supply, that meet the demand. So don't regulate it. Because what I hear a lot is, well, we just need to start telling people we can only do affordable housing. Sure. You can only do this. You can only do that. Go to any jurisdiction that has had increased regulation on housing or anything else to try to make it harder and watch what happens. It just drives costs even higher. And I'm, I hear about it so much now. I'm like, do people really not remember how, how, how recently that recession was? We, we have a tremendous opportunity right now, but man, there's a risk that if we, if we play this wrong, we double down on our problems. I don't see infrastructure being solved soon. I don't. It's a joke. Public transportation, I don't see it being solved soon. So you got infrastructure, public transportation problems. You got a housing crisis. If, if our elected officials do the wrong thing, we could, we could find ourselves in a world of hurt soon instead of doing the right thing, which is freeing up, letting the private sector figure this out. So we're out here at 10 Mile. You talk about that lack of public transit in our work downtown. It's been yeah. most of my time down there. I actually like getting in my car and driving out here because it's like, oh, there's a project I need to work on and there's something. But it, it's, it takes time and oh, yeah. it adds carbon to the atmosphere and does all sorts of things. Do you worry that these types of developments can promote sprawl? You're also doing some infill projects too. I know you've looked at some things on the bench in Boise. Yeah. And how do you balance that? You once told me that every project you do starts and ends with parking. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so I would I would go through our so. I do believe we're big enough now where people want to work where they live. And I think that's a very healthy, as far as demands on infrastructure, the closer we can put office parks to where people live, that's a good thing, right? I, downtown Boise has tremendous challenges. It's just constrained. If, when I was down there two days ago and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can't even believe. Go back to when I did 8th and Main. Right what it was like and what it is now, it's gonna get even more constrained with lots for lots of reasons. In fact, soon we have we have another building we're gonna do down there too that I'll talk to you about. Great. But well, you just put that on the podcast so people are gonna be like, what's he talking about? We'll, we'll get that offline and we'll check We love we love downtown. I, I miss being down there. But you know, most people, working families, live out here. And so the reason why 10 miles, so I mean, look at all these buildings going up, there's buildings everywhere. It's because companies want to be where their employees work. 
and parking's not an issue. So we, I consider 10 mile an infill project because it's right in the middle of Napa and Meridian and CUNA and Middleton and anyone can drive here to work, right? I consider Eagle View Landing as a great infill project. I consider Eagle uh, Central Valley Plaza, which is down on Highway 16. There's nothing down there. And our, our north-south transit is worse than our east-west. Oh, it's terrible. East Benches west. in the river are big constraining factors. It's horrible. So I, I do believe that over time you're going to see infill projects which make it easier for companies to, to have offices where their people work. Now get to parking though. I don't look at just, I mean, I, I had to, I came in the office earlier this morning, I had to go downtown at 8.15. The, the freeway is a disaster already. Sure. State Street's a disaster. Chinden's a disaster. I mean, we're already there. And I think I, I've given up on this idea. Remember when I died in 2020? So yep. I put together a group. Hey, it's still a great study. It's like <laughs> it's 2020, by the way, everybody. It's, it's after looking at a calendar. And if you look, if you look at that report we did six years ago, it's the same today, which is we have a huge problem and it's gonna come slap us in the face. I'm I'm I don't know if I'm cynical after getting into politics, but I believe what's gonna happen is it's gonna require complete gridlock and an uprise of the people that don't pay attention to pay attention and say, we're gonna do something about this to get funding to do what we're gonna do. Uh, one of the big fallacy out there is there everyone says, Well, what's the plan? What's the plan? There are great plans. There are amazing plans. For go to Compass's website. Yeah, go to Compass. There's, there's plans for everything. Yeah. It's just no funding plans. There is no plan to fund any of this. And um, so it'll be interesting to watch happen. People salivate over that rail corridor. I, I, yeah. Uh, the last episode of this we did with Elaine Clegg, we talked about it. I think I talked on two episodes ago with Lauren McLean. I talked to Governor Little. I talked to Luke Gavinor. This could be called the Rail Corridor Podcast, I think, at a certain yeah. level. But is there a way that private industry can help that get figured out? Obviously, Union Pacific is a big issue set yeah. aside. But everybody looks at that and go, boy, that can help us a lot. Sure. Except for I would say... Every one of those individuals you just mentioned, why don't we start with this? How about a public transportation with rubberized wheels that actually works for working families to be able to work swing shifts? That would be a phenomenal place to start. No funding. It can't come all out of Boise property taxpayers' budgets, right? But before we start talking about rail and Union Pacific, I love that we're talking about it, but we might as well be talking about you know, going to the moon tomorrow. Yeah. Let's figure out how to have a system, a public transportation system that is actually doable and funding it. I mean, you look at the way VRT has to go around with their hat out every year and get funding, and you look at what the city of Meridian or anyone else actually contributes to a budget that allows routes that are even, I mean, if you're a working family in the Valley and, and you're, you're saying, hey, I, I, I would, for whatever reason, financial or I, I just don't want, I don't want to take my car anymore. Good luck. Right. We're one of only two states. And I think it's only one now. I don't know the data for sure. That doesn't, we don't have any state funding of public transportation in the state of Idaho. Yeah. So it's left to cities. You got, you got city of Boise that say, hey, we're doing our share. The city of Meridian can do almost nothing when it comes to BRT. So I love talking about rail corridors. I love talking about, hell, someday I want to go to the moon. But let's get public transportation at least where we're talking about it and funding it. And Elaine's been a champion of this. I mean, you talked to Elaine about how her vision was at least can we have a bus route down State Street and a bus route down um, Fairview that at least gets people to work as an option. That's a great place to start. Um, 
And then I think you're going to, yeah, we do have the right bones, but that's the cynical me. Now here's the, the rail corridor me. It's really nice that we have the bones we have because at some point we're going to have light rail. At some point we're going to have a, you know, more of an express, um, system of public transportation where you're going to be able to, it's, we're set up perfectly to go from Nampa and Meridian to, to downtown, the Boise Depot and down into downtown. We are, but man, I don't know when that happens. Is, is 10 mile crossing served by the bus? 10 mile crossing has barely any bus in it at all because it's in Meridian. Right. So you've got a lot of, a lot of folks out here yeah. who are all for the most part, probably in single passenger cars. Is there a role that, I mean, you're going to have some pretty large business, you, you do now and will have more, yeah. but all those folks can come together and say, hey, you know what, we're going to give an inducement to our employees to take the bus and maybe that goes into sure. a pot that helps us. You know, are there ways that private industry, the free market can help this problem? Absolutely. Um, except for when you take it to the next level, because I think what you would find here is the infrastructure for public transportation is so piss poor. Yeah that you can't even start having a conversation. Because from right here, where would you take the bus? Well, it's not gonna be in Acuna. It's not gonna be, there's just no bus routes at all. So I do like your thinking, and I think once we get critical mass at a place like this, it will happen. And again, what I think is gonna happen, Don, is I think it's gonna require people to just be fed up, and they're not yet. I watched it, I mean, I watched when I ran for governor. The number of people that actually are paying attention and are, in, involved in the public policy that affects their daily living is very, 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 very small. And I think that number is going to have to get larger, and I think then all of a sudden it will happen. I also think the rhetoric of some of our legislators that say, we'll never do this, we'll never do that, it goes against my very core principle. You watch all those legislators change the second the public crying outcry comes and says, I mean, think, think, think of the garbage bonds. We're never going to touch those again. They're morally wrong. Well, right. I guess what happened as soon as everyone in Canyon County said we're fed up, they used the garbage bonds and they opened up the, the road to third plane. So uh, I think we got to wait for that to happen. What's next? What's on your horizon? Ooh, uh, we're looking at, you know, we, we only started this, this new company a year and a half ago. So that's hard to believe because I've written a lot of stories about it. Yeah, so it's been not as many as about a stadium, but close. <laughs> Yeah, hey, I think that's my Disney state. I bet you do. Uh, well, I, let's, okay, let's let's take a let's take a sidebar. So Expo Idaho, big big project there. They want to redo that. I think the outcome of that process may be an RFP. Would that be something you'd be interested in helping to help? I think that's the perfect infill development. Two hundred forty acres yeah. on the river. You could integrate a, a stadium so well there. I mean, you could. You think of the uses you could put there for housing. Yeah. Think of the variety of housing types you could have there. Right in the river, right in the right river. It's, it, that's a dream site. And people say, "What are you going to do with it?" That's that's like, you know, if there's ever a softball down the middle, that's it. Which is just hey, multiple housing types, use the amenities of the river, existing infrastructure, existing transportation, easy bus routes. You know, have some entertainment there with the stadium. So I, I think that's that's easy. We would love to be part of that solution. I I, I figured as much. Okay, so now we'll ask you where, where you're going to go, other than Expo Idaho, perhaps. <laughs> uh, you know, I think we're. Uh, this is uh, my team knows this. I, I probably um, this is our year to just execute, <laughs> as if we haven't. In fact, Mark Cleverly, who I love to death, like a brother, like about a week ago, he's like, "Dude, you back off a little bit. You're just on me like crazy." But what I what I view, Don, is we've got this tremendous opportunity with these sites that we have. 
and we just need to execute and deliver now uh, spaces that make difference for companies. And on the on the Salter Health side, we are well on our way to delivering um, something new, and we now we just have to execute. So for me, that's that's what I wake up. That's my my goals are my goals. I have three goals. I'm a goal writer. I write down goals religiously every year, and this year I only have three of them. And, and Much to Mark Cleverly's <laughs> excitement, probably. <laughs> well, they're pretty easy. One, one goal is uh, I, I sometimes don't stop to just take a deep breath. And I'm really trying to once a day to just look around me and go, man, I'm grateful for what I have. And part of that might be coming off my health scare. Sure. Um, and part of it might be that I just think that we, we are so used to complaining in current times that it's just really helpful for me to stop and take a deep breath and go, you know what, I'm really grateful for whatever that is that moment, but, but doing that. Two is to text someone that won't be expecting it, that I appreciate them on a level. And three is to execute like crazy. <laughs> so that's my goals this year and I, and I read them every morning and um, I'm excited for this year. I'm excited for the possibilities we have in the Valley. There are big challenges, but um, but they, there are great leaders here that are going to rise up when the time's right. I do think the business community can do a lot to help solve some of these issues. And I didn't want to skirt your question, but I, I really think it's going to be what, what's going to come first. You know, we tried to get business leaders together to, to influence the infrastructure thing, and it didn't work six years ago. I don't think we're there yet. But I do think when enough people say something's got to happen, that there'll be the time for the business community to step up and say, hey, what about these ideas? So if people are listening to this and they're expecting me to ask about a top golf style <clears throat> entertainment venue, I will do that offline just in case I don't want to disappoint people. But I do want to close. We are so close to answering that question. <laughs> I figured we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll chat about that. But um, I did want to ask you about your health, and you, yeah. you alluded to it there, and we talked about this a bit. Um, you had a health scare last year, and where are you now? So I'm just I'm, I'm really, really lucky to be alive, Don. I, I, uh, I had uh, chest pain and had a stent put in, but they found a congenital abnormality, so they had to open me up and redo all my coronary arteries on the outside of my heart. And uh, boy, that, that really, um, I was 51 when it happened and I just wasn't expecting it. I mean, it was the last thing that I was expecting and uh, I'm doing really well now. It's hard, I mean, it's really hard for people out there that may be listening to this. The reality of the American diet nowadays and the food we consume, which, which leads to disease, um, it's a hard change to make, especially for, for people that are busy, because everyone's busy. If you talk to everyone, everyone's busy and they go 100 miles an hour. But trying to find ways to, to fuel our bodies right and listen to our bodies, I did not, I'm not a good example of that. I'm a physician. And I was, you know, the way I was treating my body, the way I was listening to my body was not right. So I'm trying to make those differences and to speak up about it, awareness. I can't tell you last year how many people I have I have scolded and said, that's what I was doing, go get checked. And you know what? I had a lot of friends that have gone and got checked and got, man, you saved my life. I'm like, gosh, I'm sorry that it took me to go where I went, but I'm just, I'm living life with more gratitude, I tell you that. Um, and taking advantage of relationships mean more to me now. Um, when you're laying in bed, knowing that, uh, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go into something big, and it, who knows what they find, but I may not come out. Uh, it makes you, it makes you reflect on what you're truly doing, and are you, are you making a difference? Have you told the people you love that you love them? Have you forgiven the people you need to forgive? Have you, uh, have you made enough difference in the world? And so I think it's probably changed me a bit. Um, having a new grandbaby, 
three weeks ago. That's amazing. And uh, I'm really glad I made it through to see that. Watching my daughter take care of him has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. And uh, you know, that's was a big deal. Gratitude, relationships, reflection, and a grandkid. I think that's a good place to leave it. Dr. Tommy Alquist, thanks for joining us on the Voice Eat Up podcast. Thank you, Dr.